Let's turn now to the Word of God and to the New Testament and to the Gospel of Matthew and in chapter number 20. And we're beginning a reading at verse 17. Matthew chapter 20 and at verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as he went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let their eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their, their, their sight and followed him. Amen. This is God's word. I mean, trust that we bless to us our reading from it. And we've got to think especially of the words that we have from verse uh, 28, verse 20 down to verse 28, where we read uh, the words, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, as we follow the teaching of Matthew from this gospel with regard to Jesus as the Son of Man, uh, we did notice in chapter 16 that there is a turning point. And the turning point is the point at which Matthew begins to focus much more so on the death of Jesus, his journey to the cross, and what will af happen afterwards. And that's, of course, what's at the very center of our faith. There is no faith but the faith that we have in the Jesus who came from Galilee and who went to Jerusalem and who was crucified on Calvary's cross. And as he continues to engage with those who are around him, different questions arise. And he has uh, particular answers for them in the light of the fact that they don't really understand the kingdom. And it's perhaps surprising to us that as we read the gospel and as we reflect upon 
our own lives surprising to us how we can be so confused being so familiar with the gospel and in so many different ways miss the very point of the gospel and we can spend life sitting under it and fail to appreciate the key principles of the kingdom of God and that's one thing that's clearly evident in this chapter that the disciples themselves have missed the critical point and because of that they're asking for things that they should not be asking for and I want to focus upon that today and, and to see the way in which Jesus from the end of chapter 19 through to this section in considering and raising the issues of his death and resurrection and glory to see the way in which he addresses the confusion of their hearts and by doing so gives to us a real insight not just into the kind of work that Jesus does but an insight into the kind of people that we ourselves should be. And we want to think of these verses and the Son of Man and the heartbeat of the kingdom. Well, notice first of all that we have in the, this, these verses and in the broader context, we have a program. And in the program that Jesus explains to his disciples, there are two particular stages. And the final stage of the program is where he speaks of the glory of his kingdom. And we have that at the end of chapter 19, if we can refer back to that at verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus is making a prediction. He's making a prediction about his own glory. He is the Son of Man. He is the glorious Son of Man of Daniel 7, who will have a kingdom, who will have dominion, and who will have glory. And he points their attention to the new world. My, how we need a new world. A world that's reborn to free us from the wickedness that we see in the world around us. There is a new world. And the whole idea of the new world that Jesus speaks of, it's a world that has gone through regeneration. And we think of regeneration perhaps in ourselves being born again. But here Jesus uses that image and that picture and process with regard to the world in which we are living. That the day is going to come when there will be a regeneration and when there will emerge a new world that's entirely different to the world in which we live. And it will be different because the Son of Man will sit on his throne in that kingdom. He will no longer be the invisible king of glory who sits at God's right hand. He will sit on his throne and the, world's will, the world will gather around him and the peoples of it. And here he tells them that the disciples themselves, they will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. They are going to share in his glory. They are going to share in this kingdom. They themselves are going to be kind of kings who are going to sit in judgment in this kingdom. And when he speaks of the new kingdom and the 12 tribes of Israel, it's, it's a, a contrast between 
what the new world will be like. The new Israel, the real people of God, who are born again, who are the children of God, who are brought into the everlasting kingdom of God. They are the ones who, who will be the new Israel and they will judge in the sense that the old Israel that has lost its way and because it lost its way, it lost its God and it lost the privileges that God had given to them, they are going to judge on those who fail to be the true people of God. And it's how uplifting it must have been for the disciples they're going to Jerusalem and here is their king and he is going to reign, but they are going to reign with him. And today we ourselves can, can think of that first prediction with regard to this kingdom. That the day will come when we reign in glory with Jesus in a new world. And we won't be switching on our, our TV sets in the morning and be distressed because of what's happening in our world. We will be filled with the bliss of the paradise of God and the kingdom of God where we will see Jesus in all of his beauty and glory and where everything will be good and where peace will reign at a level and at a depth that we never experienced before. The program, the kingdom of glory. Let's always encourage ourselves that that is the final step and stage of the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus wants them to understand that there is a stepping stone. There is another stage before we come to the new world. And the stepping stone is the stepping stone of the cross. In other words, Jesus wants them to understand no cross, no glory, no suffering, no enthronement. And what a lesson that is for them and for ourselves. And see what he, what he says in, in verse 17 of this chapter 20. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. His mind was fixed on, on all that God had purposed for him. He knew why he was going to Jerusalem. He wasn't going to a friendly gathering. He was going to the exact opposite. Look at what he says. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. The chief priests and the scribes that refer to as sinners in other parts of the gospel. But here he's going to be handed over to the religious people of Jerusalem. And they are the ones who are going to judge him. They are the ones who are going to condemn him. They are the ones who are going to put him to death. And even when, when Pilate says he finds no fault in this man, they are determined that he must die. And they nail him to the cross on Calvary's trees, suspended between heaven and earth. He wants them to understand that before glory there is the darkness and the pain of Golgotha, of the cross at Calvary. And from the depths of the sufferings of the cross, there is a, a kind of stairway to glory, where he's going to be raised on the third day, 
and exalted at God's right hand. He is stating clearly what the program is about. And that is a program that they were losing sight of. Jerusalem. Yes, we're going to reign with them in Jerusalem. Jesus is saying, listen to what I'm saying. That's not going to happen. Jerusalem is about the cross. The glory comes at my return. And we ourselves have to, have to capture everything that Jesus is saying in case we miss the point. And Jesus tells the disciples in, in John chapter 14 that he was telling them these things before they take place so that when they do take place they would believe. And we have the luxury now of looking back on the completed process. We're not with Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. We're with Jesus and Jerusalem is behind him. The cross is behind him. The tomb is behind him. We're looking at Jesus and he is in his glory. And we need to see clearly the simple picture of the program of God's kingdom that there is no glory without a cross. Secondly, and on the basis of that, that brings us to think of participation. And when you think of participation in this kingdom, let's make sure that we understand what's happening in the story. And what clearly stands out at the beginning of the story is the confusion of the disciples. And the confusion is such that they are taking their worldview or their worldly view of, of, of what it means to, to be leaders in the kingdom of God and taking it into the kingdom of God and thinking that's how we are to live here. And that's what comes through in, in, in the, the message that we have coming from the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Zebedee's wife, the mother of, of James and John. She comes with a staggering request. After all that Jesus has said, she kneeled before him. She asked him for something. What, what do you want? See that these two sons of mine are to sit one on your right hand and one at your left. She is wanting her sons to have the primacy, the, the key positions, the highest place in the kingdom of God. And Jesus immediately, he spots what the confusion is. And that's why he responds in the way that he does. In verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. That is, the nations of the world, they do lord it over them. In other words, they are using the authority that they have in a legalistic way and doing so in order to exercise their power and dominate those who are around them. The first thing they are mistaken into by transferring that whole concept of leadership into the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say, their great ones exercise authority over them. 
their leaders are exercising the power and authority given to them in order to, to bring the people under them to bring them in a, into a place of, of oppression. We look across the world and we see that kind of aggressive leadership. And we see it in, in relationships between nations as we see in, in the conflict in Ukraine at this time. We see it in the leadership of, of governments, of organizations. We see that there is that dominating, oppressive kind of leadership which is, has nothing to do with what God wants us to do in our leadership. And they had to understand that. They had to come face to face with how much they had missed the fact that there's no glory without a cross. And we so much have to be on our guard ourselves about that. That being in the kingdom is not about gaining honor for ourselves. That being in the kingdom is not an opportunity for us to take the thinking of the world and all of its dynamic leadership and bring that into the kingdom of God and be in the kingdom a, a representation of we, what we have in the world around us. That is not the way we are to be as the children of God. What are we to be like then? Well, we are to participate in two particular things. And we are to participate, first of all, in suffering. We believe in the Lord Jesus. We become disciples of the Lord Jesus. And when we do so, we are signing up to suffer with Him. And that's what He says to them in, in verse 22. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? We thought recently of the cup that Jesus had in Gethsemane. The cup of His personal, unique, redemptive suffering. Here, it's the cup of everyday life. It's the, the cup of the things that, that, that we suffer day by day. It's the cup of general suffering. And we see Jeremiah and Jeremiah 25. And, and God took the cup of, of the wine of wrath and he placed it into Jeremiah's hand. And he was going to speak that message to those who were around him. They were to suffer in this world. In the Gospel of Mark, in the, in the parallel passage to this, Jesus speaks of, of being baptized with the baptism with which I am going to be baptized. And it's not the baptism of, of water that, that we have as a sacrament. It's the submerging into a depth of suffering as he made his way to the cross from which he would emerge. But a descent into suffering that was inevitable, that was unavoidable. Are you able? So, so they are, yes we are able. And Jesus agrees with them. Not that they were going to die for others the way that he did. But we know from the book of Acts that, that James was a martyr for the gospel. We, we know from the book of Revelation that, that John was exiled on Patmos. They learned to understand that suffering was central to them being 
disciples. And we are so often confused that the moment that we begin to suffer, we think that that's an indication that we are not disciples. When the reality, the opposite is the actual truth and the reality. That if I have no suffering for the sake of Jesus, then I cannot be a disciple. Hear the words of Paul writing to the church in Philippi, who were themselves oppressed and suffered persecution because of their faith. At the end of chapter 1, he says to him, It was gifted to you not only to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer for him. They come together. By virtue of believing, we are signing up for suffering. And Jesus repeatedly says that to his disciples. In chapter 16 of the Gospel here, he's saying, If anyone is to, to become my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There is no other way. John 15, if they persecute me, they will also persecute you. How wrong their thinking was. They had the image of the throne, but they had to face the realization life is going to be so different. And so it is for ourselves today. If we are Disciples of the Lord Jesus, if we are the children of God, what might we expect? The unexpected. At an unexpected time, in an unexpected place, we are going to suffer because of our faith. And as we follow the story of Jesus himself, there is the possibility that the very suffering that he speaks of will come from Religious people themselves, from those who are around Jerusalem here, from those who may be around the church of God in the world, there is the possibility that suffering will come in an avenue and from a direction that is the last thing that we expected. And when that happens, it is not a reminder to us that we cannot be, that we don't belong. It's a reminder to us that we have the very mark that states clearly that when I'm suffering for Jesus as a child of God, I am, this is the confirmation or part of it, that I am the child of God. There is participation and suffering and there is participation and serving. How hard it is to serve and you're saying to me, oh, it's not, it's so easy to serve. It's not easy to serve. Because Jesus tells us here what that service means. In verse 26, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Servant in the sense of, of waiting at a table, of showing hospitality. Of being, being the kind of person who will do the menial tasks that no one else will do. And who will do so for the good of the household. And the church being the household of faith, in the words of Paul, 
is the place where we as the children of God have to serve the table in the sense that we are going to show the hospitality and the care and the provision that perhaps no one else will do but ourselves alone it is taking the lowest task and it's taking up the towel and it's taking up all these things that enable us to carry out the, the task that no one else will do serving a table I was at a funeral yesterday and in the after funeral gathering in the family home there was one person and he didn't stop serving from the time that we went in from serving at the table to washing in the sink he did everything from start to finish I don't know anything about the person in his heart but I do know that here is an example of what Jesus is saying here when I see a child of God a true disciple then I see them serving and they stand out from the rest because they are serving when no one else will and every day in our lives we have to battle against what the disciples were struggling with battle against our own natural desire to lead and to dominate and to have others serving us but no GSA that's not what you are to be you are to be serving in the household of faith and serving the people of God and when you are serving in that way in the household of faith you are to serve as a slave Whoever, in verse 27, whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And there is a difference. There is the servant in the household who is there part of the household. The slave is a step beyond that. It's a person who sacrifices their own will, surrenders their own lives, is entirely under the rule and the will of the master, has no independence does everything for the Lord and for the Master. And that brings us to the place where when we are serving in the household of faith as the children of God, as disciples of the Lord Jesus, we are doing so as those who, who, are, who are slaves for Jesus Christ. No, not in any kind of negative way. We read the letters of Paul and he said, I shouldn't say proudly, but he said clearly. He wanted to tell him who he was. And who was he? Paul, the slave of Jesus Christ. The same word. He is the slave of Jesus Christ and he rejoices in serving and in suffering for the good of other people. And here we are today and we're, we're looking at the Son of Man and how he's establishing his kingdom. And he brings us here to the very heartbeat of the kingdom of God that if the life of God's kingdom is in my heart it will be pulsating in this way let me serve other people in the household of faith let me be the slave of my master the Lord Jesus and let me bring, bring these two things together and let me make sure every day that having these things in my heart will keep out of my heart the natural inclination to want to dominate and to have others serving me. Do you not think 
that's a real challenge. Do you not think that's a real difficulty? It's a struggle for, for me and it must be a struggle for everyone who is a child of God because we need to suppress the natural inclination of our hearts and we need to let the love of God and the love of Christ, to let all of that reign in our hearts. And when that happens, what a beautiful picture of God's kingdom that we are serving one another and not looking to lord it over anyone. That we are serving our community. Because we are sent to serve by our master. We have surrendered, surrendered everything to him. And for that reason. We live for him. Participation. He didn't promise us. That we would get there easily. He promises us that we will get there. And he promises us that just as it was for himself, that there was no glory without the cross, there is no glory for us without the suffering and the serving. That's the heartbeat of the kingdom of God. So we have the program, we have the participation, and finally we have the proclamation. If suffering and serving is the heartbeat of the gospel. Where do I find the heart itself? And that's where Jesus comes to in verse number 28. He takes everything back to himself, even as the Son of Man, the one to whom belongs the kingdom, the one who is going to reign at God's right hand, who is going to have glory and dominion forever and ever. The Son of Man came. He came from glory. He descended into this world. He entered into the arena of suffering. And he did so not to be served. He didn't come here so that the world would serve him. He came here to serve. The word that is the same word as he speaks of as those who are serving, showing hospitality in the home. And that's quite significant. That the, the service of the Lord Jesus that he gives, it's for the household of faith. It's for the church that he has come to save. All that he does, he does to serve her. To serve the people. We have the table of the gospel. We have the, the table of the Lord. We have the church of Jesus in the world. He has come himself to serve everyone. To reach to everyone to make sure that they receive the service of the kingdom. And he demonstrates that to us by bringing us to the heart, the gospel itself, and by bringing us to his own heart. To give his life as a ransom for many. I take what's most precious to me, my life. I give it over to whatever it takes to serve them. That's what Jesus is saying. Whoever I'm going to give it to, it doesn't matter. What it costs me to give it, it doesn't matter. My purpose is to serve them and to give my life for them, for the many. And to give my life 
not just to suffer, but to give my life as a ransom. I asked the people in the days of Jesus, what does Jesus on about when he talks about ransom? And immediately they're going to think of prisoners of war who have been captured and imprisoned. They're going to think of, of the price that needs to be paid to go and rescue these people from the prisoners, to set them free and to bring them back to where they belong. They're going to think of the prisoner of war. They're also going to think of, of the marketplace and the slave trade, where there are slaves locked into a life of service to an evil master. And they're going to think of the way in which a price is paid to set these slaves free from their evil master and to give them the freedom of serving in a home and under a master who will care for them as a master should. It's about paying the price so that people are free and so they may go on to live their lives. And the prisoner of war is coming back to, to serve his own country. The freed slave is coming to serve a new master. It's not a, a ransom that's paid to release people from serving. It's a ransom that's paid to release people from the service that they were in so that they can take part in the service that they should be long to, that they should be participating in the service of Jesus Christ in His church in the world, serving one another. And when I read through my New Testament, and Paul is perhaps the master at, at taking the teaching of Jesus and applying it to, to the churches to which he spoke, and I hear him saying, for example, in, in Romans chapter 6, he speaks about those who are set free from sin have become the slaves of God. With no negative connotation whatsoever with regard to being slaves of God. It's freedom from the service of sin into the service of God. And the service of the Lord Jesus he pays the, the ransom price. He is the one whose, whose heart melted like wax as, as he gave his life a ransom for many. And it is from his heart that the lifeblood of the church emerges that, that causes your heart and mine to, to pulse day by day with his love without uh, the ransom price that he paid on the cross, there would be no service or suffering in God's kingdom for you and for me. But because he set us free by paying this ultimate price, because of that, naturally, supernaturally, in this organic way, as those who are connected to him, because of his heart, our hearts today are pulsating in this way. We want to know the Lord Jesus. We want to serve the Lord Jesus. We are going to suffer for the Lord Jesus. 
And we are willing to do so because we understand the program. That we are going to where he is, to his glory. And there is no other way but through the path of suffering and of service. May God help us today and every day to face the challenge of becoming worldly in our thinking about the, the church of the Lord Jesus. And may God help us day by day to serve one another. And there is no greater joy than to find ourselves in a place of service, recognizing that we are serving the Lord Jesus. And that there is our delight to be the good Samaritan and to be the, the people that are ready to serve others. And when I see Jesus in, in John chapter 13, in the upper room with the disciples, and it's time for feet washing, and they're all sitting there looking at each other, and nobody's prepared to stand up and take the basin and the towel. And in the room up stands the Lord Jesus himself. He lays aside his garments, he takes up the towel and wraps it around his waist, takes the basin, and begins to wash their feet. As I have done for you, I left you an example, he said to them. So you go and do for each other. Here is how we can serve him, following his example. He came not to be served, but to serve. Let's always make sure that we are not here to be served, but that we are in his kingdom to serve him and to serve one another. And may God help us every day to do so, prayerfully dependent upon him. May God bless his word to us. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we do give thanks to you for the example of your son and your word. And we are thankful for every way in which he displays your love and grace. We are thankful for the, the human way in which he lived in the world and the way he shows to us how we ought to live in following his example. Help us to learn more about him so that in learning we might be able to serve you better and have our lives changed day by day, inspired by the cross on which the Prince of Glory died and inspired by the fact that he is enthroned beside you and the day will come when we will be enthroned with him and reign in the new world of the everlasting kingdom of God. So hear our prayer and bless your word for Jesus' sake. Amen.